And the Grammy goes to the college dropout, Kanye West. Um, everybody wants to know what I would do if I didn't win. I guess we'll never know. I'm Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy, the podcast with a slightly different description now. Did you check out the, how I changed the description on all of our DSPs, Scott? I haven't, but you told me what it was. Yeah, so um, what you will learn about Triloquy just from the offset by looking at the um, description is it says Garrett McQueen is a professional bassoonist turned arts activist. With the help of his friend Scott Blankenship, the two explore what it looks like when the so-called classical genre meets music, conversations, and cultures from outside of the concert hall. I think that's a pretty good description of what we're doing here. You're going to have a hard time getting that on a coffee mug. Yeah, well... When we start, some, when we start giving people t-shirts and stuff, that's, that's going to take up a lot of space. I guess we'll have to figure out the shorter version <laughs> of that. Anyway, I'm doing my best. I just got fired from my job, so let me, so, so let me wrap my mind around things. Okay? An anagram. <laughs> sure. Um, uh, thank you to all of the returning listeners. Shout out to all of the uh, new listeners. Um, thank you so much for, for supporting this project. It, it means a lot. This uh, 67th opus of Triloquy is brought to you in part by Alex Lang, principal clarinet of the um, Phoenix Symphony, who's taken part in lots of things uh, in the world of uh, diversity and equity, including Juilliard's um, Evening Division, Advancing an Anti-Racist Orchestra Model. If you want to uh, learn more information about um, Alex, and some of the things he's doing um, on the performance side of the orchestral side of anti-racism, um, just visit his website, alexlangmusic.com. I'll have a, um, a link to that in the, in the description of this. There's also a link on the front of the Triloquy website. I also wanted to uh, shout out pianist uh, Michelle Can uh, for her very generous contribution um, to Triloquy. And, you know, a big thanks to all of the listeners like you. Isn't that what we're trained to talk about in public media? All the <laughs> listeners like you. <laughs> but but it is up to listeners like you. You know, I mean, the the contributions, you know, that I'm so grateful for that, you know, you've made to this project um, have allowed me um, to make plans um, to focus um, on this and other initiatives, at least for the next uh, few weeks. So, <laughs> so, so thank you again, and and it, it really means a lot to to have such uh, so, such big support for for this project. Of to ours. be able to do it clear headed is the thing that has to be the biggest. You know that you don't have to jump on the first thing that comes along. Right, right. I mean, and 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 maybe we'll talk about that you know later in the later on in this opus you know how um you know the things that are born from the mind you know creators have uh, to deal with their real lives and their real drama but also use that same mind to you know create a product so mm-hmm. it, it can be a challenge um today's downbeat comes um and thanks to kanye west uh, Con- kanye west doesn't come up as often as steely dan or beyonce on this podcast but he comes up i mean we've <laughs> we've, talk- yeah. we've talked about kanye music 
music. Uh, uh, what you uh, heard in today's downbeat uh, is an excerpt from his uh, 2005 uh, Grammy speech where he won uh, the Grammy for um, for a college dropout. So uh, we'll be getting into um, Kanye's relationships uh, with, with the Grammys and other institutions here in a bit. Um, a few um, interesting um, pieces of music for us to explore today, Scott. I've gotten a lot of conversations, um, again, concerning my termination. Well, what exactly were you subbing in? Were you playing rap on the airwaves at the middle of the I night? I saw so, some of those posts. <laughs> so, Boy, that story got out of hand. It really did. So um, uh, as we strike a chord uh, this week in the second movement, um, I'm going to share you know, some of the music I subbed in. And, and Scott, you've got some uh, pieces to talk about. Um, the guest for this week's opus of Triloquy is the man who got me started in all of this broadcast nonsense, Todd Steed, music director at WUOT-FM. Scott, we both talked with him. so Yeah, but I felt like I knew him anyway. You talk about him frequently. Yeah, yeah, so huge shout out to him. Um, and then uh, in the Triloquy, I have a, I have a couple things this week, so we'll, uh, we'll, we'll make our true and real statements to the world then, but how about we uh, go ahead and jump in and check these accidentals. So let's sort of clear up uh, a couple things concerning these accidentals. And I, and I made the point today to say, no matter what, I will put an accidental next to everything I talk about because I love to forget. So, <laughs> Me too. so, so in the, you know, when, when, in the concept, you know, just to take a, a step back conceptually, when I put a sharp next to something, that's me, um, uh, acknowledging, uh, something that we're, we've read an article or whatever as, you know, my having a very sharp reaction to it. Maybe it's good news, news that, you know, can raise, the spirits of a people in, in the same way that a sharp raises the pitch. Mm. You know, um, when it comes to a flat, maybe the opposite, you know, things that, you know, put a damper on on things or maybe lower the, the feeling. And then when we talk about naturals, that accident, that musical accidental of the natural, I like to reserve that for, you know, a very natural reaction or a correction to something that um, we, we may have said. So, you know, if, if you're a new listener, that's what we're going for. Uh, if that doesn't make sense, sorry, because I don't make sense a lot, neither does Scott, so it's fine. So with all of that being said, I understand you actually wanted to start with a natural. I do, because week. last week we were talking about composer Lars Eric Larson and his time spent working for a broadcast service. Uh, we, we identified him as Finnish. He's actually Swedish. My so bad. We'll put in, we'll, no, 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 I agreed with you. So... Uh, we put a natural next to that one. Yeah, so shout out to Lars Eric Larson and his Norwegian. Where's the man from? Sweden. Sweet, his Swedish right. heritage. Shout out, to, shout out to all the Swedish music and all the Swedish people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but but so a natural there. Um, one of the articles um, that you brought in um, this week, I definitely saw as a big Flat. We'll, we'll we'll get into to that um, in a second. But but the first article, Scott, I wanted to um, jump into um, actually featured um, a former uh, uh, Triloquy guest, Brandon Keith Brown. It looks like this was um, uh, produced by WBUR. It's titled "Classical Music Change." Oh, sorry, classical music can change the racial conscience of society, um, and and it goes into his. Um, you know, um, uh, uh, opinions on how music can work in tandem with anti-racism, why the classical music field looks the way it does. Mm-hmm. You know, he he names me and my, you know, situation um, in this article. Um, I've talked to a few people since this has come out, Scott, and it just seems like um, Brandon rubs people the wrong way 
um, when he talks about race, um, he's very forward, very direct. You know, he he doesn't mind you know going there, mm-hmm. as we say. Um, did you see any issues? Did did you, did you feel at all uncomfortable looking at uh, this article? Was was there anything that sort of jumped out to you as a little weird or left field? Well, I listened to the opus where you, well, the two opuses, right? Yeah, he got you, a double feature, yeah. And you know, um, no, I I I know where he's coming from, and and I'm not going to say I know all of his opinions, but. From what I know of him, this seems to be what Brandon Keith Brown is about. Yeah, one of the things that uh, really, and I actually listened, uh, and maybe this is uh, taken like from transcripts of the live radio interview that you can also uh, take a listen to um, in the in the link that I've posted in the in the description. But um, you know, something that he said that I wanted to throw your way, Scott. He said, "Blacks dominate everything we touch." So that's mm-hmm. you know obviously apparent in in sports like basketball and football. But even if you want to go over into golf, you know, there's Tiger Woods who was much more than just another name on the rosters in tennis. The um, the Williamses, uh, namely Serena, who is really you know uh, taken off. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know about any black hockey players or anything. I'm, I'm sure they're out there, but you know, do, yeah, there do, are. Do, do you think there's any merit? Um, to what uh, Brandon, to to Maestro uh, Brown, what what he was saying there, this fear that um, black people are going to come into so-called classical music and then it's just going to be us because we, you know, dominate everything we're involved with anyway. That's the first time that I ever thought about it from that angle. Oh, really? Huh? Yeah. No, I'm not lying. Well, I mean, but what about in, um, I don't know, like in, in, in theater? I mean, w- w- if you had to go for a role back in your uh, heavy acting days and you saw, you know, a strapping black man in the waiting room, you know, coming after you or whatever, would you would you feel a way? Would, would you feel particularly nervous? <laughs> have, have you seen me lately? <laughs> have you been in that? Yes, I would be nervous. Ha- have you been in, an ex- in a situation like that, I guess I should ask? Sure. Talk to me about it. Oh, I, you know, last time... You were auditioning for Malcolm X and they gave it to the black man? Is that what happened? (laughs) I'm I'm not going to go that far. (laughs) No, but last time we were talking about this because I was talking about every time me and Alicia McGar were on stage, our characters kissed. And you said, oh, didn't you own this? Yeah, how did you direct that? I didn't. I was cast in the role by the director, right? Mm -hmm. Um and so I would I don't know a really good example to give you in regard to theater, but when it comes to doing commercial work, because I was doing commercial work, um, just billboard ads, industrial films, commer- you know, TV commercials and things like that, and I I lost out more than I got. Yeah. But that's the case in the performing arts. Yeah, you know, I mean, most that's, musicians that's just, win one audition in their whole that, lives. See, that's what know? I'm saying. That's just that's just the way it is, and and rejection is part of it, and. I don't care what color the person is. If they're more attractive than me, yeah, they're gonna get they're they're gonna cast the guy that's handsome and looks like he's got a family, not some guy who looks like me. You 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 playing real safe right now? That's fine, but because because I'm sure there had to have been that one time where you're I, like, okay, I tell you what, right now, right now, if I were to go and audit the the one role that I would guarantee. guarantee you I would get is some grizzled old backwoods still operator that's that's the look that I've got going right now (laughs) well we we need those stills we need that uh, moonshine especially these days yeah Mm. Um, uh, something else uh, I thought was uh, pretty interesting from this article um, that Brandon pointed out he said new audiences aren't being invited in 
they're just being notified. So, you know, when you send out the mailer or, or, or send musicians uh, into these uh, so-called urban schools to, to promote what orchestras or, or choirs or whatever are doing, I think Brandon's point was that they are, these communities are being told what is happening. Right. So what? So what? Why, you know, that, that does not mean that they are actually being engaged Correct. or even um, invited in. I wonder how um, you would uh, you would apply that to the work you do these days. So when we talk about uh, these live broadcast concerts or even the publishing of uh, playlists uh, on, you know, on, on, on websites or, or, or whatever, how are audiences being invited in beyond, oh, this is what's happening at, at that time? I mean, do, do you think... Do you think there is a next step that, well, obviously there is a next step, but, but for you, what would be that next step beyond, okay, guys, we're doing this piece, maybe one of them is by a black composer, yeah, we're doing this. How do we cross the bridge from just notifying a community to actually inviting them and then be even beyond that, making them feel like they belong? That's a great question because I have been thinking about it recently, but not in the radio vein. Mm-hmm. Because I really think that orchestras and and you know uh, chamber ensembles are really uniquely poised at this point to be the the voice of what's next. That's what I think. Um, because we, you know, when we talk with Todd about programming choices and changes that you make to things, you know, there's a calculus there. There's a there's a uh, formula that a lot of times is just stabbing in the dark. Mm-hmm. And I think that orchestras have a, would, would be better, more nimble to address the situation now, don't you think? I mean, they, they, they have to be if they're going to survive. I mean, I'm not going into, I already told y'all, I'm not going into anybody's concert hall to hear anybody's rendition of Beethoven, and that's that. Well, sure. But, um, but if you can go into, uh, you know, an unusual space, an untraditional space, give a distance concert in a park or something like that with music that speaks to that community. I mean, isn't that a, a whole lot better than saying that a certain fraction of your hour is going to be, uh, you know, broadcast is going to be women or people of color or let's, whatever it is? Let, let, let's, let's, let's take this down a little bit and, and, and get specific. So this is, this is something that I'm thinking about right now. Um, at your job, you um, played a big role in um, this uh, classical kids story time. For folks who don't know, these uh, music meeting um, images, original illustrations, and, and a video that kids can watch that's supposed to, you know, engage them with classical music and somehow. All right, so you were involved with one that spoke specifically to the local uh, Hmong communities and Hmong populations with a... Uh, just a quick side note. Um Gavang wrote it, and what I did was just make it fit in the time. I basically edited her story. Okay, so okay, so it's it's Gavang's tra- take on the traditional story on, on a traditional Hmong yeah, fairy tale. I, right, I, I didn't write it. Right, yeah, I'm not saying you wrote it, but you were involved and you played a big role in making sure that it was done correctly. You know, you were involved with the editing. And okay, so fast forward, there is this, you know bit of media 
mm-hmm. that is rooted in classical music, so-called classical music, that centers a different culture, a culture that has a, a large population um, here in Minnesota uh, and the Twin Cities. Um, they have been notified, I'm sure, in, in some way, people from those communities, you know, even from it just being posted um, on the website um, um, at, uh, at your job, you know, the notification of, okay, we're paying attention to this community and these folks' stories, how we can engage them. This is there. Okay. Have they been invited? This project that you were involved with, have, have Hmong populations, Hmong communities, Hmong children, have they been invited in to engage this? And in what way do you think um, people even know from those communities that this thing exists? How, how, how is the engagement happening beyond just the creation of art that is supposed to speak to specific communities? In the example I'm giving here, this, this, uh, this Hmong children's fairy tale that, you know, that you've, you helped produce to, to speak to some of these issues. Well, I can tell you what I did was basically tidy up a long story and you know, not that not that it needed tidying up for the story's sake, it needed it for overall length. And then God and I met again, and I made sure that all the changes that I made, that she could put it in her voice. Yeah. And then I handed it off, but I did say early on that we need to be engaging. Hmong artists. I don't want my voice in it. We need to engage Hmong artists for both the visuals and for the audio. So how? So tell me right now, how has that engaged the Hmong communities? Does its existence as, as a bit of, uh, and I'll, I'll post a link so y'all know what I'm talking about in the description. Does the existence of this thing mean that your organization is engaging those communities? I don't know, Garrett. I think it doesn't. I, That's I, the answer. It okay, does not. Okay. Um, but I, I haven't I haven't thought about it like this. You know, this the way that I was thinking about it was um, to try to have a equitable collaboration. Yeah. So to tie this back around to the article, I think that's what Brandon Keith Brown is saying here. Organizations, institutions are beginning to create content that is meant to speak to certain communities, but the creation of that content is not speaking to those communities. That's not what that work is. What that work is is actually going out into those communities and engaging them in the real way. I feel like so many folks will um, will create, you know, like we've been talking about this Hmong uh, fairy tale, um, wipe their hands and say, okay, we've done our equity work. You know, we have this, we have this bit of content that speaks to them and their experiences, so we're done. Done. And I think there's so that's not even the beginning. And I think that's the point that Brandon Keith Brown is making here. If any of these orchestras come back, you've been talking about the challenge is an all black season. Let's pretend that an orchestra like Chicago would, or New York or Los, you pick would do an all black season. That is not an invitation for me to come. That They have not engaged me. They've done something for their institution. They've said, okay, we're going to have an all black season, but they have yet to actually engage me as a potential patron. I think that is the point. That is so much more than just putting these things on stage is actually going outside of your comfort zone, outside of the concert hall and engaging the communities that you are trying to engage, that you allege to engage in a real way. I I think that's the point. Yeah, I see what you're getting at. So what does that look like then in the time in September, 2020? 
Well, I don't work in public media, so it's none of my business. <laughs> but I'm just I'm just giving y'all. So if, if I were in charge uh, of an organization and I wanted to engage a community, you know, that was not there, I would make whatever investments, whether that's time or money to make sure that there are uh, is a person or people that can actually go find out who are the uh, perceived uh, leaders in these communities. Uh, go into some of these businesses. You know, we have a grocery store here where um, a lot of Hmong people um, go to it and, and get the ingredients that they need. It's their to, store. Right, to, to create, you know, to, 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 to engage culture in that way. Who manages that grocery store? Who's the assistant manager? Who has seeded the money? Does it have connections to other businesses? You know, so mm. I think that's more of what it looks like. Um, and, and, and we need to, um, they, I'll say not we, they need to um, <laughs> uh, do yeah, a little bit more of it. I just feel uh, so unequipped to talk about it, you know, because all I've done for 30 years is do content. I haven't done music, I haven't had the music director, well, I was the jazz director for a little bit, but that's a lot easier than uh, at the station that I was at. The jazz was a very small part of the clock. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, I I would be making assumptions, like we talk about with Todd, if I were to try to go down that road. Yeah, well... I, I forget if I gave this an accidental again or not. Um, oh, are we still in that movement? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so this article, um, I am in these perspectives. I'm going to give a sharp because while Brandon Keith Brown is a polarizing figure um, in the arts, I don't think that's something untrue or or you know weird to say. You know, so with that being considered, you know, I think he definitely raised some very, 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 very. Um, important questions here, including that question of what it actually means to engage a community beyond notifying them that we have some sort of art or some type of product that you know you might find interesting. I see, um, in in that article, um, Brandon Keith Brown goes on to uh, talk about um, one of the pieces of classical music that sort of gives him life—a work by Mendelssohn, *Calm and a Prosperous Voyage*. *Calm Sea and a Prosperous Voyage*. Yeah. Yeah. So here's here's a little bit of uh, Brandon Keith Brown uh, leading a uh, performance of that as we uh, get into our next little accidental here. Accidental is a sharp. Uh, this one I was going to bring to the podcast a couple weeks ago, but then that apple cart got turned over. Yes, it did. And so we've been dealing with those apples. And uh, I just wanted to say charges charges against Curtis Flowers have been dropped. Have you been following the Curtis Flowers saga at all? I hadn't until you sent this article. So who is Curtis Flowers and what is this about? Okay, Curtis Flowers is a black man in Mississippi and after 23 years behind bars, six trials, four death sentences, and most recently months of house arrest for the 1996 murders of four people at Tardy Furniture Store in Winona, Mississippi. Charges have been dropped. He is a free man. What I think is very important to name. So you give it a sharp. I read this. Did I say sharp? Yeah. (laughs) No. Well, I mean, sharp, it's great that he's free and flat that it happened this way. Yeah. So as I was reading, you know, my biggest, 
my biggest thing was the uh, the reaction to, or how, how can I say, the, the way they framed the reason for um, his being free. So the quote from the article here is, in the interests of justice, not because this man is innocent, not because we fucked up, but in the interests of justice, mm. you know, we, and, um, you know, when it comes to the way, again, um, your organization dealt with uh, the firing of a certain sexual predator, you know, a lot of the the backlash was, well, in the statement, you aren't saying that you fired him because he's an abuser, but because he would no longer uh, pull in an audience, i.e. money. OK, now they, they didn't talk about money, but um, I'm, I'm only bringing that up to say. Um, even in the re- official uh, reaction to Curtis Flower being free, there's still a decentering of his own humanity and his own um, his own justice. You know, can justice ever be served for a person who spent so many years behind bars, so many times in the courtroom, knowing that he didn't do anything? You know, uh, another part of the article. Um, say, so the what he's what he's charged for is uh, the murder of a couple people um, at a furniture store. I don't I don't know if you. Mentioned that but yep. but in but in the article um it, it 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 throws out there that there was the allegation that you know he was probably just some disgruntled ex-worker you know mm-hmm. who was he was fired and probably disgruntled and and that's why he went in there and uh did what he did so you know ju- justice we, we, we can talk about they can say in the issue interest of justice but at the end of the day he will never see justice because that's time those are experiences that that he can never get back all because Mississippi is Mississippiing, you know, um, you know, and, and, and even furthermore, you have the uh, prosecutor who's named in this um, article who was just trying mm-hmm. to get this man killed, you know, doing everything he could to get the death sentence on this innocent man. Beyond that, you have evidence here that people, witnesses will just lie, just straight up lie. I think sometimes we forget that people just do not tell the truth. They just lie. Um, and then, you know, um, even 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 beyond that, I, I, I don't know. I, I'm glad that um, that you've brought, you know, you brought this to my attention. I think it's just um, one of many stories like this. Good for him that, you know, he, he didn't get that death sentence. But think about how many people were killed. I wonder, you know, and, and we, will never, to wonder. We, we will never be able to know. But if no. we could know the number of people who were killed, who who uh, had to face the death sentence after, you know, being innocent this this whole time, if we could have that number, I mean, how, what important data that would be? Because he, he could have very easily been added to that, very easily been brushed to the side as another victim. Of of the South. That's right. Yeah, um, uh, uh, Nina Simone talked about this, didn't she? She did. You know, she, and and when you say everybody knows about Mississippi, again, we all know, but that we we want to doubt that. Oh well, this didn't have anything to do with race, or oh, justice will be served. Don't you see? Justice was actually served. Is what a lot of people, you know, might react uh, to this situation. But you know, she. Nina Simone told us so. Alabama's got me so upset. Tennessee made me lose my rest. And everybody knows about Mississippi. Goddamn. Can't you see it? Can't you feel it? It's all in the air. All right, so um, one final accidental to check here. I'm going to put, I'm going to actually put a natural next to this because it, it, it sort of lays out the lay of the land uh, when it comes to um, this so-called classical music and everything. So the, you know, so many institutions are, are talking about DEI and, and everything. Well, eventually 
as, as we're seeing now, I, I knew in my head, when are we going to see the white lash? When are we going to see people really pushing back against this? And we're beginning to. So there's an article uh, put out by The Federalist that, um, again, you'll uh, see a link to in the description uh, of this titled, No, Beethoven, Classical Music, and Etiquette Aren't White Supremacists. So just from the from the title alone, Scott, what is, what, what, what is, what is your reaction considering the work we're doing here? Where, do, where did you find this? This, uh, I think someone passed this along to me, actually. I'm not going to name the author because I'm not going to name the author. But some, someone passed this along to me. And, um, yeah, I, I, I just think from the, from the title alone, what, what, what is your just sort of knee-jerk reaction? I'm sitting here thinking, okay, somebody's going to grab onto this. And the progress that you're talking about and that we've been talking about on this podcast for almost two years – Somebody's going to grab onto this and keep this as a reason to stay where we're at. And, you know, people do a good job of telling on themselves. So one of the reasons uh, that, that he throws out there to really respect the concert hall, dress up, clap when you're supposed to X, Y and Z mm-hmm. is because these concerts are a culmination of months of work. Well, first of all, <sighs> anyone who has ever worked in an orchestra ever on stage or otherwise know that it's usually a little less than a week. So if I was in a, if I was, I'm trying to remember the last time I performed Beethoven five, it was definitely in Knoxville. I can't remember the year, but you know, that's four, four, maybe five rehearsals of that. So it's not months of things, you know, now you can make the argument that it's a lifetime of training and practice and, right. and all that sort of thing. But, you know, painting a single concert as the, uh, and and the rehearsal cycle as the culmination of months of work is just untrue. So so just reading that alone just made me realize that this is somebody who isn't necessarily um, on the inside. Um, he also talks about the historical implication of you know some of these concert hall etiquettes and and procedures how you know this is something that you know that the concert hall has always been revered and we need to continue that tradition well again that's not really true if you go back into um, all of the stories all of the letters written about the old opera houses and Mozart's days you know even the premiere of of Beethoven's fifth symphony that was on the same concert as the premiere of his sixth symphony of the choral fantasy and and, and a number of other things people People were just there, like you know, like we would be in in a in a movie theater. There were in in those old opera houses. Um, all of the boxes had blinds that you can close just in case things got a little sexy, which they did. You know, if you if you read certain accounts. Um, so even even from that perspective, the idea that the concert hall has always been this prim and proper place is just untrue. What instantly came to my mind um, was, you know, when I'm thinking about bringing this into Triloquy, Scott is. Um, the historical implications of the theater and back how what, what I was taught anyway was back in Shakespeare's day you know you'd have the play going on on stage you had the people who could afford the the seats up high but most of the people that were there were just standing like in the standing room section some of them maybe eating a, a mutton chop some of them you know doing this arguing you know so it, it was very much this it, it wasn't this etiquette filled space that uh, we we've painted it to be. A- am no. I correct? In, no, in you're correct. And your you know experience with the theater. Anyway. Yeah, you're correct. And if you really want to see some interesting uh, interaction, you know, like going into a community and and talking about engagement, look up theater of the oppressed. 
if you go to theater, you know, the, that is theater that just happens. You know, you like in a, it's maybe a flash mob, but there's a loose script. There's interaction with the people who are going by. Um, and it speaks directly to the issues that society's facing, yeah. facing, facing. <laughs> right, 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 right. So, yeah, theater is very much holding a mirror up to society, to the, the current events of the day. Absolutely. Now, I think the bigger thing to address um, about this article is the protection of whiteness. Let's just call it what it is. This, this person obviously doesn't like the idea of the concert hall becoming a place where you can come as you are, where you can clap when you want to. I, I can go uh, um, later in another opus. Uh, right. we'll, we'll talk about how Hindemith, the composer Paul Hindemith, talked about clap where you want. And there's actually a piece of music, um, his trumpet and bassoon concerto, that speaks to that. You know, I'll, I'll tell that story uh, another time. But anyway, you know, we aren't pr- actually protecting etiquette. We aren't even protecting classical music. I think we're just protecting the status quo that has been built around it over the years, built around it with certain people in mind. And now that that's being challenged, there's pushback. I think we're going to see a lot more of this. I think we're only beginning to see um, the opposing side of DEI initiatives in classical music. We've, we've been given plenty of room to talk these past few years. I think I, th- I think the time to actually engage those conversations is coming. And that is, things like this, articles like this are exactly why I think that the transition is so long. I would love to be wrong. I mean, but, but, but go more into that. You're saying people who hold this opinion are what? In positions of power? They have the money? What? Sure. You know, let's say that uh, somebody from um, an orchestra or chamber ensemble or the program director of a, of a radio station or, you know, who knows? Uh, it could be a theater. If somebody grabs onto that and goes, see... All those people that signed onto that manifesto were warning us about this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, See? what were they trying to cancel us out here? Cancel right. Beethoven. And so, and and how does that not inhibit forward change? Unless, well, you know, like what you're doing here. And then, if I may even take this a step further, this is something that I addressed um, in my last town hall with the American Composers Forum. Shout out to them. White people as well as black people need to be prepared to actually engage these conversations. So I have to be prepared, you know, because of who I am and in the work that I do, I have to be prepared to um, combat in whatever way I can someone presenting um, whiteness to me in this way or, or challenging the work that I do. If this person was in front of you making some of the allegations concerning, oh, you're trying to cancel Beethoven, we have to maintain the etiquette of the concert hall, how would you in that moment engage them would would you be able to 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 do that right then and there well to quote katie and delaney i wouldn't (laughs) (laughs) but see that's not a see i don't think that should be an excuse for for you though i mean especially when it comes to um folks trying to you know uh you know do the right thing and and be an ally you know that's a part of it yeah I i know what you're saying and what i would tell people is that you need to be practicing to work up to that point and that means talking to your friends talking to your family members first because those are the ones i think are going to be most generous with their time and if you can have a a good dialogue with somebody that you know 
then maybe you'll be a little bit more prepared if things get heated when you're out on the street and you want to call some, no, we're not mentioning this guy, if you want to call him out. I mean, I, or even practice in the mirror. Scott, when I get out of the shower sometimes, I practice yelling at white people who want to try me. Del can tell you he's heard me screaming in the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> like I said last, Like I said last week, I would love to be in the neighbor's house and just, what is going on over at Garrett's place? Anyway, so um, go check out that article. Tell us what you think about it. Um, I guess in, in transition, as we get into the um, go into the second movement, um, we, we, we can we can take this opportunity to play a little Beethoven. I mean, I'm I'm not ashamed to say that Beethoven Five is my favorite symphony. That may seem like the, you know, the the, the go to answer. Unlike a lot of y'all, I've played every sim- I've performed every one of them. So I think I, I have the right to say that Beethoven Five is my favorite. Do Do you have a favorite? Seven. Your favorite is what is it about Seven that you love so much? Is it that second, that slow second movement? It, I, I'm pretty sure that that plays a, a large part in it, but that was the first one outside of the Symphony Number no. Five that I heard, and it really impacted me. And I just, it's just got, it's one of those sweet spots, just because that was the next discovery. Well, how about we listen to a little bit of that as we uh, strike a chord and get into the second movement. gabbing in that first movement scott sorry y'all or you're welcome y'all maybe you need some time to to fill again as i've said split this up throughout the week and by the time you actually get done you'll have a new one to listen to so there you go (laughs) i'll try that out myself Uh, but we're here in uh, the second movement where we're going to strike a chord talk about uh, some of the music that got us through um so i i made a point this past week scott um to to take a you know to go back through my own classical library and and see what you know tickles my fancy on, on, on that, on that side of thing. Um, maybe I'll bring some of those works in next week, but you know, what I wanted to do this week was address some of the, um, accusations of what I was actually subbing into the playlists that got me terminated. There are whole threads of people arguing whether or not songs like this belong on classical radio. Fuck the police coming straight from the underground. <laughs> now nobody was doing that. Nobody was putting rap on I the radio. I can't believe that that <laughs> happened. I mean, they, they really think I was up there overnight really clowning and really putting us. So anyway, so what I wanted to do today was uh, bring in a few pieces of music uh, to, to, to let you sample um, that I actually did uh, sub into the playlist. You know, so some of the music that led um, to, to this uh, termination of mine. So uh, the first one I want to bring, and then you have some music as well. We'll, we'll mm-hmm. alternate. We'll go back and forth. But the first one I wanted to make sure that I address. So um, a lot of people are assuming that one of the pieces that I subbed in was Joel Thompson's Seven Last Words of the Unarmed. Now, obviously, that is a piece of music that I stand by, but it's a piece of music that I felt like um, I would really get in trouble for real for, for, for subbing in. I, I, well, it's not the trouble that I was concerned about. It was the getting caught. I didn't want, you know, because that pe- because of that piece being what it is, I knew I would get a lot of reaction. Some of that reaction might not even, you know, positive even. And some of that reaction might not come back directly to me. So knowing the institution that I was working for at the time, um, I chose um, to let, to wait until it actually made it onto one of my playlists, which it did the next day. So, you know, I I will credit Ryan Lohr, shout out to him, uh, the music director at the time, 
um, for, for, for putting that in. But actually, so um, the night uh, before the George Floyd stuff was a, uh, his murder was a, uh, was national news, still sort of community based. I was thinking about the family. You know, I was thinking about the mother, the, the brothers, the sisters, the friends, the neighbors of George Floyd and, and what must they be feeling right now? Yeah. So um, one of the pieces uh, that I subbed in that first night that I learned was one by a living composer, a white male composer whose name is Eric Whitaker. Anyone in the choral world you know, knows his name very well. Um, he wrote a piece called When David Heard, and it takes the story of um, Absalom, the Bible's Absalom. And I, I, I didn't come here to preach to y'all today, but I'll, I'll tell you just quickly. Um, Absalom, this guy in the Old Testament, very strong, you know, and um, had all this power, um, but was but was killed at, at, at some point in a battle. So this piece of music, When David Heard, is supposed to depict David's emotions when he found out his son was killed, when his son died, with sort of the pervasive lyrics being, my son, my son. So while, you know, and and the point I want to make by bringing that up is, yes, anti-racism, pro-blackness, you know, I'm all about it in and outside of classical music. Um, But another one of my responsibilities, you know, as a curator, as as a host, is to um, put all of this music in context and find something that's topical. And this was exactly that, you know. Um, and, and, and when I aired it, um, you know, people knew, local people knew exactly what I was spoke, uh, speaking to. I mean, I, I certainly directly spoke to the situation, but, you know, they got it. They, mm-hmm. they, they, got, they got that. So while, um, you know, works like Joel Thompson's um, are ones that, you know, I do stand behind and I did, I have presented over the national airwaves. I wanted to, you know, offer that example of just how I can be topical outside of, you know, um, other things like making sure that, you know, there are ex-black composers on the playlist. You know, later on in that evening, I subbed in some George Walker and and, and other things to speak to that. But um, I think Eric Whitaker's When David Heard um, was very appropriate um, for that moment. And again, while I was breaking rules uh, doing that, I was really um, speaking um, to a situation I felt like in a more personal way, not not um, going straight toward the the action part of it, you know, the awareness part of it. But first, thinking about the family, thinking about George Floyd, not as a symbol, but as a human being, as a person who um, who, who lost his life. I'm actually going to make reference uh, to another Eric uh, Whitaker composition here in a second. But what, what are the one, what are one of the pieces that you uh, brought in to well, share today? This method that we're sharing our uh, music choices this week is a good example of hocketing. What do you know about hocketing? Well, I know because I went to music school that a musical hocket comes when there is a single melody that comes from different voices and not not necessarily the human voice so it, it can be trumpet and oboe or whatever but sure. uh, a single melody where the individual notes 
come from different places. It comes from the French word hiccup, mm -hmm. evidently. And I first heard about it when my buddy John came over to play music down here one night. And when we first started playing together, my skills weren't where his were. And so to sort of make up for that, he would bring in compositions where he would play one side and I was we were handing it off. Mm -hmm. So think of it as quick fire call and response, sure. but the response is always different. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, you hit the digital delay pedal and it just blossoms. Right. But what, again, I want to stress what makes it a hocket is the fact that that back and forth culminates into one thing. Correct. You know, it's not a duet. It's one melody played by one or more, or two or more people. So that is why I wanted to bring in Mira O'Reilly. Do you know Mira O'Reilly? No. Last year, she released a EP uh, 10 minutes worth of Hockets for Voice, Hockets for Two Voices. But she's doing both of the voices, and I'm, I've got a Pitchfork article that we'll put up online. I was about to talk about how not only is it a beautiful voice and really creatively done the way that she put this EP together, you also have to acknowledge her work in the software, mm -hmm. right, okay. as an right, instrument. Right, right. But then I read that article, and there's no production in this. So they were just doing She's this. doing this. She took a year to put this thing together. And not only is she exploring the hocket, but it also goes in stereo. And sometimes the notes seem like they're up high in your, you know, like they're up by your eyes, you know, so it's an experience. Hockets for two voices. We're so synergetic today, Scott. The idea of the hocket, you know, multiple uh, voices coming together for one sound, one melody. True. Um, I, I can I can stretch and, and connect that to the next piece of music I brought in. So um, uh, it's called the rain. So think about um, the sound of one drop versus many drops. You know, and and that's that that's that, how do I do with that transition? I don't know. I, <laughs> I'm I'm out of I'm out of practice making these. Uh, what I was I was, right I was okay, engaged. Okay, I was engaged. I was going great, great. I was going with you. Well, um, and, and that's actually um, so. When I talked about you know when David heard by Eric Whitaker, that's an example of me trying to be topical. Well. Another part of, you know, what I really um, wanted to always put forward in my presentations was um, cohesion, making sure that all of the transitions, musical and otherwise, made sense. So there was a night when, um, and, and this is, you know, many, not many months ago, maybe in February or something, when um, I had on my playlist um, an instrumental work by Eric Whitaker called Cloudburst. And so, you know, so I, I decided to um, do the billboard, the intro to my hour about that and, you know, and X, Y and Z. So um, what comes next, you know, pull to pull the curtain back a little bit. A lot of stations get the news uh, for the five news minutes, for five minutes at the top of the hour. And other stations, you know, just get more of me um, presenting music. And, and, I, and I always think that that moment is very important, you know, tying the theme that I've created for the hour and in that introduction into the first piece that I actually present. So instead of whatever Bach, whatever. 
was on the playlist. <laughs> I, w- I went to uh, Japan to get a, a, a tune by a composer uh, who goes by Joe Hisaishi. That's, uh, I think his actual name, his last name is Mamura, but you know, his, the, the name he goes by in his creations mm-hmm. um, is Joe Hisaishi. And, and one of his uh, pieces um, is called The Rain. And I think when we talk about cloudburst, you know, that piece of music, The Rain, served as the perfect um, transition. And once again, it was against the rules. I was breaking the law, but I think I, I not only created that uh, very uh, cohesive synergetic moment but also show folks this really incredible work um, written by a Japanese composer that they may not have always known That piece come over um, every now and again. The rain by Joe Hisaishi. Sure, but um, you know that that's a short rotation. That that five minute piece. Mm-hmm. You know that's a that's a tough one to plug. So nice one on the on plugging in the rain. Yeah, yeah. What else you got uh, to share with us this week? This one's quick. There is a brand new EP with one track with the Kronos Quartet and an artist from San Francisco. She's an Ethio-American artist, and she goes by the name Mechlet. And uh, I looked up her website. She uh, she has some really good news. Uh, recently, she's been named the director of the Yerba Buena Center for the Arts in San Francisco. And they uh, she teamed up with the Kronos Quartet for this track called The President sang Amazing Grace. But no words could say what must be said for all the living and the dead. So warm at the end in that place the president sang Amazing President sang amazing grace. And when I first saw, you know, I, when I first saw that the Kronos Quartet was involved, I thought, oh, this will this will probably be shocking or jarring somehow mm-hmm. or whatever. And this is just such a lovely little four minutes of music. And uh, I need to check out Mechlet Hadero is her name, known simply as Mechlet. She calls San Francisco home. What about listening to that piece of music for the first time really struck a chord with you? I mean, we talk about music being beautiful, but was there a, a deeper anything? It reminded me of a time that I felt good about the state of things. Hmm. Uh, and I guess we'll leave it at that, huh? Well, <laughs> you know, feel, you know, there's always hope that positive times will will come along again. So in my final um, example uh, that I wanted to bring in of some of the music I was subbing in, I I cannot quite remember the situation, but there was something going on, you know, in the news that, you know, maybe yet another example of police brutality. There was something that was happening that I had just learned about Mm -hmm. right then and there. Um, I had a piece of music uh, assigned to me that hour, um, uh, Schoenberg's Transfigured Night, 
Um, That's great. Yeah, it, it's a great piece. And, and actually, the story behind that piece of music uh, worked well for what I was trying to talk about in reference to whatever was happening in the black community. Again, forgive me for not remembering. So um, to help me get there, um, I chose a movement from William Levi Dawson's Negro Folk Symphony. So, yes, this is, you know, one of the many examples of my bringing in um, blackness and black classical music um, into the fold. But the excerpt that I chose was called Hope in the Night. And um, beyond the title, I think the sound of that movement really speaks to the stillness of the middle of the night and not being able to do anything else but hope. You know, you've worked the overnight shift um, in radio, and I'm sure there's 2.30s, 3.30s, maybe even 4.30s when, you know, in that moment, whatever bad situation you're going through, whatever's on your mind, it's magnified, and there's nothing you can do but hope that something better is going to happen or that when you get off the air, it'll be resolved. So, you know, uh, uh, again, not rap. I, I wasn't on the airwaves, you know, doing nothing crazy, but just applying, you know, these sounds and, and, and these stories and these perspectives into how I could present the music. So, yeah, um, uh, William Levi Dawson's full Negro Folk Symphony, of course, is one that I think is very important. I aired it all the time down um, in Knoxville at WUOT, um, and it came across the playlist a couple times um, here. But, you know, sharing hope in the night in a moment like that, you know, not only magnifies the perspective, but it also prepares people for a piece of music like um, Schoenberg's Transfigured Night uh, that is more in the canon and shows them that, you know, these are two different perspectives right. on the same idea. Yeah. So that's the move, the music that uh, moved uh, Scott this week and some of the music that helped move me out of my uh, previous job. If you want to take a closer look, a closer listen to any of those, um, just check out the uh, Triloquy Tracks playlist on Spotify. I uh, try to keep that as updated as I can with all of the music we talk about here. That is, that is a wide and deep playlist yeah i, I like it I and love then it. some of the suggestions that come up you know come from a little bit of everywhere so i'm I'm, yeah. I'm proud of that playlist be sure to go um check that out so as we mentioned uh, a little earlier today's guest taking a stand in the third movement is todd steed the music director at wuot fm in knoxville the man who pulled me into this world of broadcast and radio uh we we, we talk about that broadcast and radio uh his background is jazz so um we we talk a little bit about jazz and um, I give him a chance to plug um, his podcast uh, called Improvisations to Go um, to uh, transition us into the third movement. Scott, I wanted to um, give a little bit of sample um, of a piece of music that I learned on the jazz show in Knoxville, you know, at WOT um, Improvisations, a tune that I had never heard before. It's a song called Reckoner. Now, who originally recorded the song? Radiohead. Radio, see, and, and, I, and I did not know that. I heard uh, Robert Glasper's rendition and the way that those... Um, um, you know, the way that something about those piano chords just has this beautiful melancholy about it. And and driving around that evening, listening to that tune that I had never heard before is a moment I'll never forget. The power of radio, the, the power of what is possible. That's in an odd meter, isn't it? Is it? It's in four, if I'm thinking about it in my mind. <laughs> oh, it, oh, it has maybe it has some split 
bars in it or something but right yeah but um it translates really well to the piano i thought it was gorgeous when you, and, and i sounded off right away oh yeah radiohead you had no idea what i was talking <laughs> no, about. no not at all so here's a here's a um, so you know shout out to all the hosts uh in the jazz world down at wuot for doing some really incredible um exploratory programming and programming that helps folks like me learn tunes like radiohead's uh, reckoner and also gives me a closer look um into the the work of robert glasper so here's a little bit of that as we transition into our our conversation with Todd Seed. I think because we've always picked the right people like Garrett um, to give this opportunity and freedom to because quite frankly, I couldn't do what Garrett did, and me neither. I, You're right. Yeah. 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 I couldn't do what you do. Um. Quite frankly, but I have an ear. You know, I have an ear for like. Well, this is, I'm a listener first and foremost, and and I what Garrett's doing is really really interesting, and what Melanie Dotson's doing is really really interesting, and and what Ben Hall, this 20 year old jazz major at UT, is doing is like. He can do stuff I can't do and talk about jazz in a way I can't talk about it. Yeah. Because he uh, he can play it. Um, but ultimately what makes the thing either green light or red light or thrive or shrivel is the listeners. Yeah. And everybody in this town grew up getting a nice variety. And especially in the evening, you know, with the jazz programming where it was like, you know, okay, it's it's after the news. Let's let's let it let's, let's let, let it our roll. hair down. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And uh and then most importantly, we when you hire the right people and trust them with that, you are not going to get a bigger salesperson for your station. Sure. You know what I'm saying? So like when when Ben Hall gets on improvisations or when Melanie Dotson gets on the morning concert during Fun Drive, she's just not doing her job. She's preaching. She's telling you the what is important to her and what's important to you. And, and she has this great relationship with listeners. And so people feel that. They feel it and they appreciate it. And of course, like Melanie and Garrett, they have a nice hand on how to do it. Sure. You know, it's, it's not just like, you know, if, if, they, if, I, if they would have put me on UOT when I was 19, it would not have gone well for anybody, you know? <laughs> it would be like, I'm going to play the weirdest stuff ever, even if I don't want to hear it, because I want to be the weirdest guy, you know? I'm going to play, I'm going to make a 10-hour Frank Zappa show. <laughs> and that's going to be great, because I want to 10 hours it. straight? Yeah, I'd do, I would have I done it. I'd probably, you know, I would have done it maybe until 30 uh, or 57 or whatever. <laughs> But but you got to trust those people, and then if you do, and and I want to say something real quick about Garrett on UOT because you know we would get emails sometimes or, or calls and and quite frankly, ninety percent of his emails and calls were like fan mail, and not and not just like he's all right. It's like I love this, um, but that other ten percent, you know, yeah. And I get that 10%. We all get it. And, and why not? If you, you probably should if you're doing anything the least bit interesting. Exactly. Right, right. But that 10%, you know, it was fascinating because they weren't hearing what was real. They were hearing what they assumed was happening based on their 
conditioning or um, projections of who Garrett was or projections of what Garrett's trying to do. And the truth of the matter, you know, people call up and they'd say like, you know, he's playing, forget about race, he's playing just nothing but new music. Uh, that would be the more likely, you know, thing I would hear. In, right. and, I, you know, I, sure. and then I would go, I would because we have composer, I would go through composer and go, no, he's not. He's playing everything. He's play, you know, he played like plenty of stuff from 1859 and 1903. Mm. Um, and and this is what this is the learning experience for me. And this is why I so I, I enjoyed Garrett's time here on a level it's hard to explain because it was really exciting and gratifying as a as a as, as a radio station to see like our listeners, you know, get so excited. Um, it was that people's own ideas of what they're hearing sometimes are actually wrong based on their preconceptions about the person or their background or what they believe them to be. Garrett played an incredibly wide range of music and, and was very enthusiastic about all kinds of music. But people that were criticizing didn't hear any of it. They just heard that 20 minutes of Philip Glass or, or, or whatever. Right, right. You know, it, it, it's funny you talk about that 10% um, you know, as as you remember, Todd, and as I've told you all the time, Scott, you know, each and every one of my shows every day had a had a theme to it, had a had a point to it based on one of um, the letters that came from that 10 percent, you know, a complaint that, you know, you you only play 20th and 21st century music. You know, there's so much more. So I did a whole show um, on the year 1899 and it, it was actually a, a really great one, you know, with, with lots of diverse music there. Um, and then, you know, Todd, the other thing I wanted to respond to, you you know, you talk about, you know, them hearing the person. Um, there's a there's another um, bit of feedback that I got, and I wish I could remember this woman's name. But, you know, after listening to me over and, and over and over again, you know, day after day, um, she got an she emailed the Knoxville Symphony Orchestra office actually asking for a photo of me. And I knew what she was asking, <laughs> but I just went ahead and, and went on through it. So I gave the Knoxville Symphony permission to show this woman a photo of who I was. And the next day she called me. She said, all this time I thought you were Irish talking about Garrett McQueen. But the more I learned about William Grant still, I just figured you must be black. So I thought I would have to investigate. And this is an old black woman whose name, again, I'm, I'm so sorry that I, I can't remember. But I, but I think you're right. You know, hearing the person beyond um, the music or maybe Maybe even you know with the music, and I think that's part of the magic um, of doing a job like radio. It's much more than just a music. It's not a playlist that we're that we're putting into automation. You know, there's companionship, and and there's you know uh, 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 creating that that dialogue and placing this music. Um, a few times, a couple times, Todd, uh, in this conversation, you've used the phrase the right person, finding the right person, putting the right person on the airwaves. Um, for you, what defines um, the right person, especially? considering that many of the people that you bring on board have no radio experience yeah and and sometimes the person with radio experience can be a, a not a good fit you know depending uh, on on what it is that they're bringing uh sometimes they can be sometimes they can be beautiful um but it actually varies i think for me i mean the first thing is they understand what is what a playlist is, you know, and and that's almost something that it's hard to teach that. It's really hard to teach that. So like Ben Hall, um, 
on um, Monday nights, or we just hired a new, we're hiring a new Thursday night host, a guy named Tabor Gable, who was uh, uh, from Knoxville, but he's a jazz musician in uh, New York City, and because of the pandemic, no work, comes home, and he comes in for an interview. We start talking about music. I, I was like, this is the right person. I knew in 10 minutes. He had no radio experience. He had a nice voice. It's always a plus. I don't have one, so hey, you know, one more nice voice on the station. That's oh, great. I don't know. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. Um, but he, you know, when I talked to him about like, what would you like to hear on, on a radio station or send me a playlist of what you would play? And he sent a playlist and it was like, boom, spot on. Great. It was quote unquote radio friendly, but in a way that was not bland or, or predictable. It had a lot of variety. He understands changes in moods. He understands, you know, and, and I, I really hate to say this, so I probably should rephrase it, but. I mean, sometimes people don't want to hear a 10-minute bowed bass solo. Um, sometimes. Some people. <laughs> right. Maybe, maybe I'm the 10% yeah. in this issue. Maybe I'm the one that writes this, the letter and I, because yeah. of my, my issues. But I, I knew, I knew, and I went to uh, Regina and Greg Hill like in 10 minutes after the interview, and I said, I wasn't looking to give my shift away, but the right person just walked in the door. And... And, I, you know, to answer your question, I just kind of know, you know. And also we have Regina and Greg who also are willing to say, well, let's try it, you know. Okay, well, your Thursday night show is doing pretty good, but this is a young person, you know, and they've got a lot of time and you don't. Uh, and so let's try it. And so he hasn't gone on the air yet. We'll see. But I have a feeling people are going to love him. Yeah, yeah. I, I wanted to leave a, a little time uh, for you to talk about Improvisations to Go because I've been uh, enjoying that. And I also, you know, all, we, we always love shouting out uh, our fellow podcasters. Um, Scott, I don't know if you had any more questions, but, you know, one of the things that um, uh, Scott is going to talk about in the final movement uh, of this opus is that 10%. You know, um, I, I've been having conversations with a lot of program directors, uh, music directors uh, across the country uh, these past 10 or so days. And, and, uh, a through line in those conversations is how radio stations deal with that 10%. There are people um, who are of the opinion that, you know, we should always play nice and that, you know, kill them with kindness. Um, they take the high road exactly there there are other folks you know who are okay with you know telling people you know allowing hosts or whoever to tell people about themselves and then there's you know everything in between I like to think of myself as somewhere um, in between Todd <laughs> I, I wonder if you could uh, most days anyway <laughs> uh, Todd I wonder I if could. you could speak to um, you know the ways in which public radio stations um, and, and public media institutions sort of um, abet that sort of uh, uh, behavior. When we're talking about uh, transform, transforming programming, we're also talking about transforming audiences. How can we transform an audience that um, we're allowing to, um, you know, maintain certain opinions or, or or the way they they treat the host? How how what what is a public radio station's uh, responsibility in transforming? not just, you know, the audience demographically, but the audience um, in the way they think about radio, the way they um, engage with the hosts and, and, and everything else involved. Wow, that's, and I would love to hear both of your views on this because this is, uh, <laughs> this is, a, this is a tough one, you know? And, 
you know, maybe I've listened to too much Krista Tippett or something. So, you know, my default is to not kill them with kindness because that's almost an act. Um, but to be, to try to understand that they're all like me, I'm, I'm the product of causes and conditions. And, and I had a lot of ideas that were not very accurate and I'm sure I still do. Um, so I try to like approach them that way. But what I've, I've found is if they attack in a mean way, my host are, are people that I, I'm in charge of. If you don't support your host in some way, that's not good either, you know, because I mean, it, it's your team, it's your, it's your family, it's your people, it's, it's your, they're your colleagues, they're your friends. And, and uh, if someone's saying something untrue or nasty, you know, sometimes I'll pick up the phone and just call them and I'll just say, you know, I felt that was a little, a little harsh, don't you? You know, and, and I notice email is maybe for some people is not going to work. So what I've been doing lately is I've been picking up the phone, which is really the antithesis of how I used to operate because I, I, I just uh, I don't get on the phone at home or anywhere. Um, text. Can we text? Can we text our way through this, my man? Uh, but uh, but we had someone that 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 really kind of viciously went after one of our hosts recently. I, vicious is too strong, but I thought it was rude. You know, I thought it was a, a, a harsh. And, and, and they were definitely going for the jugular. They really wanted to put them down. Now, this is the Krista Tippett part of me. I'm like, again, that's them. And I'm not going to bite that hook because they want me to bite that hook real bad. And, I, and if anybody's seen my Twitter feed or Facebook page, they'll know I will bite the hook. Uh, <laughs> bad, you know. Yeah. Um, but, I, but I called this, this, this man and I invited him even in the age of COVID, I said, you know, if you want to bring your mask down, we'll put you in a room and you can meet this person and you can meet me and let's talk about this. Because I notice when people get away from the, the uh, safety of hiding behind a little tiny telephone mm-hmm. and they look you in the eye, a lot of that melts. And, and that's transformational. You mentioned the podcast. When I got to interview a lot of these people that I would normally interview on the phone live and saw their face a different a different reality happened mm-hmm. yeah Scott, what about y'all what about y'all i mean i, I, I need help <laughs> well you know something that i guess i haven't thought about in a while at wuot in my experience you know scott it's one thing to see the email from the person you don't know and have the anxiety of oh what is it now at wuot it was the voicemails i think i got far <laughs> more voicemails than emails i would get off a shift and there'd be 25 voicemails waiting for me so that's a different sort of uh, anxiety but but uh but todd i'll agree you know calling some of those folks back, you know, trying to be as honest, but also as, you know, just just friendly or whatever word you want to use. Um, a lot of that does go away there. You know, I would say half the time the first response was, oh, I wasn't expecting a call back. You know, so once mm-hmm. once they realize that you're a person and not just a voice coming through the box, I, I, I think some of that uh, melts away. Scott, did you uh, before we uh uh, begin to wrap up here. Scott, did you have anything else you wanted to throw out or anything? Yeah, I did. You know, when it comes to answering emails and, and things like that, at the station I was at before moving here, uh, I was the one answering the phone for the first hour of my shift. 
So I had people throwing cabbage and tomatoes at me in real time, you know, <laughs> and now if somebody sends me a rude or nasty or uh, aggressive email, if they sign it, if they put their name on it, I'll respond. And typically what I'll do is just point to, well, I see what you're saying and here's the reason for that. If you want to talk more and usually you don't hear anything back. But once I did say, uh, you know what, you're right, that piece did come up recently, and uh, I know that um, our music directors want to hear this, so maybe now's a good time to look at the mix, and I'm going to forward this on. And that seemed to pacify, you know. Um, yeah. But I really, I really, uh, Todd, wanted to kind of wrap things together in a bow based on the assumptions uh, idea that you had, you know, because um, we're sliding into the holiday season. And um, Garrett and I were talking about the assumption a lot of people have about hearing Handel's Messiah. Okay, so if we're, we're going to talk a little bit, we're going back to talking about race, because we know about Handel's proximity to the slave trade, which was a surprise to a lot of listeners right how how going on that assumption that people are just going to expect to hear that he said that you would have no problem just not doing it just not putting it on the air what would you say to a station manager or a program uh, a music director who is facing down this very question how do you handle handle <laughs> Oh man, that's that's a whole episode, you know. That's uh I mean, <laughs> and I guess to go along with that, you know, we could, you know, there are many other examples of pieces that we sort of consider pivotal to a time of year or to a sound or or to a right. station that, you know, uh that that someone might expect to hear but because of what we've learned about that piece of music or about those folks, you know, we just decide to to set that to the side. And my assumption would be that a music director would have to think long and hard about how to approach this issue. Do you kowtow to tradition or do you present some sort of a statement before you play it? What are we going to do? Yeah. And this is, and this, this is not done. You know, I think we're just now starting to, to really think about, the, the real history period, you know, or at least the, as real as we can figure it out. And this is happening in jazz too, you know. Um, you know, if I had a host that, that had a strong aversion to playing it, I would tell them, don't play it. And that, that would be the end of that. Um, but I, I would like to think on this question because I, this one is a big one and, and that's a big piece of music and it's performed live all the time it's some stations that live performance is the centerpiece of their holiday programming right yeah right yeah i, I would like to think on it but i mean you know i, I can tell you what i mean the, you know if i were to give you a cop-out answer i go it's up to the host but <laughs> you wanted your own show um <laughs> but you know garrett and i had conversations he, he would talk about hey I'm doing this today and, and, you know, and it was always like illuminating for me to hear, 
his reasoning or his 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 understanding of things that I had no understanding or very little understanding of, or, or, or a completely different perspective of. Um, you know, we actually I remember we talked about Wagner, right, right, and I told him I was like I can't listen to it, I can't listen to Wagner, you know, can't do it. Um, I just I don't put it on. I mean, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't against Wagner before, but the more I found out about it, it's like I I just can't do it. And um, I got an email um, on Friday uh, when Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. I got an email from someone saying, I I just can't connect to the the music that you're playing. Wagner is the only one who can really plumb the depths of what we're feeling right now. And I thought, really. And then alongside that conversation, you know, something that Todd can can speak to. I was very vocal on the airwaves about how I felt about uh, Gershwin, certainly Brahms. Anyone in Knoxville yeah. knows that, you know, you're probably not going to hear Brahms from me. And this is why, you know, and Brahms is, is again, one of those sounds, one of those composers that that people uh, would really expect to hear from. But, um, Scott, you're bringing up uh, that question about Handel. Uh, reminded me that uh, I don't guess I have to write breaks for uh, Christmas tunes this year. So that's that's a great thing that has happened from all of this. I don't have to try to make up a new story about sleigh rides. So, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, uh, Todd, before we got out of here, I wanted to uh, uh, make sure there was a little bit of time for us to uh, plug Improvisations to Go. So for folks who don't know, Improvisations is the the brand of the jazz segment um, at at WUOT. And in Improvisations to Go, you know, you've gone and um, interviewed view people um, on location, you know, as it applies to jazz and culture. Um, I wonder what um, you have learned as a jazz man, as a jasmine, you know, as an expert, uh, what you have learned um, uh, along the along the way of hosting and producing uh, this podcast, um, Improvisations to Go. How little I really knew, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I mean, it's been I, I think it's been the most challenging thing I've ever worked on in radio. Because I felt, well, it's just an immense amount of work, as you know, to do something like this or that. Uh, that had the travel aspect to it, which I loved, but, you know, it just presented a lot of challenges. But what I really am learning about this is that there's just no no possible better way to get a feel for a place or a people or a person than being with them in the room. And this is why COVID is doing all sorts of extra damage, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I went to New Orleans and I sat down in the room, the very first interview was Delphio Marcellus. And he immediately starts explaining um, something that probably wouldn't have come up in an interview on the, on the phone, you know? Because it's it, it, it got real deep, real fast, and it came from a remark. I think it was. I think the tape was rolling, but I was talking about I'd, I had ridden the train from Memphis to New Orleans, and that and that the train was this this microcosm of of the world of people from all backgrounds, and and I could I could just feel everybody when the internet went down. They were all wanting to get along with each other. You know, when they when they weren't. Uh, attacking each other and and then and then you know we're losing sight of our our human our own humanity the humanity of other people and i was just sort of talking about how how nice it was you know especially class 
you know, there are hardly now class, man, it's so hard. It's, it's so hard to get people from different social classes and economic classes together for any length of time in any real way. And so on this eight hour train ride, the internet went down. We're all talking to each other. I was telling him about that. And, and he just looked at me and said, you know, black people, and I didn't, I didn't mention anything about black people in the <laughs> statement. He goes, you know, black people have always wanted to get along. And I was like, okay, so <laughs> this is, this is going to be interesting. And then he talks about how, and you've heard it on the podcast, how um, that black folks gave us this art form that best embodies democracy, but we're not allowed to participate. And um, I mean, that's what the podcast taught me. It was like, I need to be going to to really go listen to people and really ask better questions, um, ask deeper questions, not be afraid to have uncomfortable things that are uncomfortable for me or for them or, or whomever, because the end result is we need to be talking and, and not just talking. We need to be listening and we need to be trying to understand. And, and also, and I'll say this, you know, we need, uh, white America needs to own up they need to own up. And, and jazz music is a vehicle for that. And that first episode was, was part of that, you know? And, uh, and that's what I, you know, that's what the podcast has taught me. And also that I love the music. I love to be, I love to be moving. I love trains. There's so much I love that I'm not getting to love enough. And I'm holding myself back from loving these things or appreciating these people or having these conversations or trying to make friends outside of my normal group. And so, I mean, that's a maybe more than you wanted, but, but uh, for me, this podcast is all about like kind of breaking things open and also looking a little deeper and, and being more honest myself. How can folks um, check out Improvisations to Go, the many other um, on-demand offerings from uh, WUOT, or how can they listen live if they want to? It's been canceled. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, nobody wants to hear me do this stuff. No, um, it's it just, just go, uh, the best place is to go to YouTube because it has all the photos, so, and, uh, and, and including yours. Uh, and yep. and it's just, just go to YouTube and search Improvisations to Go. And I also want to thank, again, it was the listeners and underwriters uh, that made it possible. So, you know, and it was uh, in particular just a couple of listeners that just said, you know, yeah, I'll do it. And uh, uh, Aubrey's Restaurant said, yeah, I'll do it. Go go do this thing. And, and they also didn't say, like, I want it to be this or I want it to be that. So I, I hope people come and listen to it. And then I hope people make their own, you know, or, or to do their own trip and I want to hear what they find out. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, uh, Todd, I could I could thank you uh, very broadly for you know that there there's so many things you know hosting skills, interviewing skills. I wasn't really an interviewer before uh, WUOT, but you know one specific really um, huge thank you that, that that I really want to throw your way, and I'm not sure if you remember, but uh, on the last day of uh, February, Black History Month in 20, I suppose maybe it might have been 2018, um, I closed out my show for that final day of Black History Month, with ob which obviously included all sorts of black music all month long, uh, with a recording of, um, of Nina Simone's take on Love Me or Leave Me. You know, th this, is, this is a tune that, um, 
you know, you wouldn't expect on a classical station. So I, I definitely asked your permission about this one first. But, you know, we, we, we've, we've talked all the time of, uh, about, you know, tunes that could really fit for jazz or classical. And, you know, but 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 that moment um, specifically was one in which um, I really believed in the power of public radio. You know, all of the emails I got about those driveway moments we talk about listening to Nina Simone play that counterpoint over the the boom chinks of a, a, a of a drummer. So, you know, I, I have to thank you, you know, broadly, as I said, for, for everything that you've done to launch off my career, but also the, the specifics, you know, helping me really imagine public radio, so-called classical music as something that um, it hasn't been yet. So, so thank you for that. And, and I really appreciate everything you're doing um, for, for the industry. We, we need more folks like you, Todd. Well, you're very kind and thank you. And I mean, but let's be honest here. You know, you made me look good. So, <laughs> well, you're welcome. And, and, yeah. And seriously, and, and it's the truth. And and it was like, um, and one of the reasons I, 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 and, and I, and I mentioned before, so many reasons I loved the time you were at WUOT was I loved those conversations. And it wasn't, it wasn't really, the, uh, you know, use the word permission, but really, you know, the thing is like, make the case. And, 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 you know, also knew your listeners could go with you because they got to know you. And we still, we still hear from people talking about you. Uh, and so, so thank you. And I mean, and, and it was, and thank Greg and Regina because, because they, they were willing to roll the dice too. You know, they, they would take more heat ultimately if things went pear shaped. Right. <laughs> and so music director is kind of a safe spot, you know, like, hey, they, they, they told me I could do it. But, um, <laughs> But but seriously, they, they they said you know, let him let him try. Let's see what happens. Uh, and um, and the next thing we knew was like, people were tuning in for the whole show. So so thank you. Thanks again to Mr. Todd Steed for um, coming on Triloquy. I hope you'll check out um, Improvisations to Go. Really great um, conversations there. And again, um, shout out to him for letting me air that Nina Simone track. You can never get away with that in, at your job, could you, huh? You talking to me? <laughs> yes, I'm talking to you. <laughs> Who else is here? You know that answer. <laughs> well, you know, let's uh, let, let's go ahead and get into this Triloquy. I'll tell you one thing, Garrett, it is tough sometimes to stay by that mantra of kill him with kindness. You know, there's, there's messages that come in that are just downright vile. And like I said in the interview, if they sign their name to it, I'll respond to them and I'll have a dialogue about it if they want with me and I'll state my case. But if they don't sign their name and that's the most vile ones, then what choice do I have other than to just go, no, I'm not, I'm not engaging with you. So what's your triloquy? What's your true and real statement to these rude email sending listeners or to the radio stations that tell you to, to take the high road and, and let them be rude to you? I welcome anybody's commentary on my performance and the music. But if you come at me away, aggressive or using a bunch of foul language or something like that, I, right now, 
I am more likely to engage you in the way that you engage me. I am a frayed nerve right now, man. I am. Oh, that's all I'm saying. I'm, I'm going to quote John Travolta in Pulp Fiction. You got me in the red. And it's hard to run a race car in the red. Well, run up when you see me, then we gon' see. I got enemies, got a lot of enemies. Got I'm being hyperbolic yet again, okay? But no, I, I am at a spot where like, all right, I'll have, a, I'll have a fight. Let's go. All right, well, I look forward to seeing it. I hope you'll BCC me. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we started this opus with... Um, Kanye West, you know, talking about, uh, uh, you know, his uh, an excerpt from his Grammy uh, speech from back in 2005. So um, maybe you saw it, maybe you didn't. Uh, Kanye West uh, over this past week put out a video and a series of very angry, angry tweets, angry tweets, angry tweets, which included him peeing on a Grammy. That was, that was in the toilet. <laughs> yeah, I, that was another thread that I was like, hmm, don't know what that is. Now, I can't remember what quite, what I was talking about specifically, but one night on the air overnight uh, on Twitter, I posted something. I think I said, um, the Grammys don't deserve Beyonce's whatever. I, I forget what I was talking about. And people were surprised, like, oh, but a Grammy is the pinnacle? How could you shit on the Grammys like that? What, 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 in 2020, what are your opinions on getting a Grammy award? Um, I don't know anybody who's up for nominations, so why should I care about who receives it? And, 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 and that's how a lot of these artists feel, that the, the selection committees, they don't know th- this music. They, don't, they, don't, they can't speak to what rap songs were hitting the hardest during this amount of time. or you know the, Those panels aren't diverse enough to address that. So a lot of folks on the black side of things are saying, fuck the Grammys and I don't care. I, think that is- I don't even know who gets them for classical. I mean, and they don't put it on TV or, or, or nothing. Anymore, no, that's but, in the afternoon, isn't but, it? But 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 even so, who are the who are the classical people in those selection rooms? Maybe they're 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 more equitable in that way. But 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 I don't know. I think what so what my point is, <laughs> what my triloquy is, folks can talk about Kanye West being crazy. Uh, I, and 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 let me remind y'all again, I did not tell none of y'all to vote for him. So <laughs> so 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 don't you know take my words out of uh, out of out of place here. But you know. Folks like Kanye West, folks like um, Drake, you know, all these other folks, you know, because he, he gave a pretty spicy uh, Grammy Award speech a couple of years ago. They're tired and they don't need that white uh, validation anymore. Um, I can talk about the recent uh, drama with John Boyega. Have you uh, have you read much about that? He the long story short, he was a part of this um, fragrance campaign mm-hmm. that, that he was involved creatively with it and starred in it. They replaced him with um, a more fair skinned actor to um, to uh, a- engage a different type of community. He said, um, you know, fuck y'all, I'm out of here. Um, you have uh, Jeremy Tardy, the the actor, who um, asked to negotiate, uh, tried to negotiate his pay on the show that he uh, was on, Dear White People, that was denied to him. Um, someone, someone else was allowed to um, negotiate their pay. So he was like, okay, fine. Um, I don't need y'all. That's actually hap- that actually happened to me um, at my last job. We can get all the way into um, Joe Button, who we've been mentioning week in and, and week out about how they don't need Spotify or whatever number that they write down on a sheet of paper and slide across the table. My, my big point here with Kanye, Joe Button, Jeremy Tardy, John Boyega, and anyone else who you want to name or think of who has completely turn their back on the white run um, institutions. We are slowly 
seeing ourselves. Black people, black creatives, black musicians are finally getting to the point where they don't need to be involved in any of these institutions. And I want all of the classical institutions um, to really understand that. The next time um, you try to get in um, a fellow, a consultant, anyone who um, you uh, want to use to make your institution better, keep in mind that we understand that. We know that at the end of it all, it's not about bettering us. It's about bettering you, trying to make you a more equitable uh, organization, trying to make your situations more equitable. If you're, um, if, if you're trying to you know, engage this work and you are a white-run institution, I want you to do your research and look at the situation with John Boyega or Jeremy Tardy or, or all of these people who have made success you know, in, right, in white-run institutions and are finally saying goodbye to it because— Y'all don't have our best interest in mind. Y'all don't. Um, y'all aren't going to see change um, without us, and uh, it doesn't look like you're going to see change at all unless you actually decide to start censuring our experiences and our stories. Scott, do you have anything to add to that? It's far more visible, and I think it's far more clear that black artists don't need white-run institutions. See you next week. 